And if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're out of chapter 10? Yes, we are out of chapter 10. Um, For 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews, we have heard significant statements about what the Christian church believes. We have heard a doctrine of Scripture, a doctrine of revelation that he began with right out of the gate, where he tells us that in the past, back in Old Testament era, God spoke in various kinds and various ways. God communicated in all different kinds of ways. But in these last days, He has spoken in a superior way to the prophets, to the angels, to every means of communication. He has spoken through His Son as a final and authoritative, beautiful communication of His will and His word to His people. He has given us, the author of Hebrews has, a doctrine of Christ. That Christ is a high priest like no other. He has taught us about the sacrificial system. That there is atoning blood, powerful blood that has been shed only in the person and work of Jesus. He has said that in every single way, Jesus is better, Jesus is superior to everything these Hebrew Christians had ever known or ever practiced in their faith. And last week we were reminded that he's also given us warnings. He's given us four covenantal warnings that the people of God are obligated to persist in their faith in Jesus. And in doing that, he's given us negative examples. Examples in the negative of failure of faith in Old Testament Israel. He's highlighted on two or three occasions shortcomings of faith, failures of faith, negative examples. But he's not just a negative author. He's about to give us some positive examples. Like a good teacher, he's going to speak to the negative. He's going to speak to the positive, painting one big robust picture of what faith and perseverance in faith look like. And that brings us to chapter 11, what you may have heard called the Hall of Faith, where he is going to go episode by episode, character by character of positive examples of Christians in the Old Testament, believers in the Old Testament, who persisted in faith through hardship and suffering and ridicule, So when approaching Hebrews chapter 11, you need to know this. I had to make a decision this week. There are some who have preached through Hebrews 11 and just zipped through it. One sermon, two sermons, three sermons. So I had to make that decision. Am I going to zip through this? Well, others have moved through Hebrews 11 painstakingly slow. There's a Puritan author that I looked at who preached... 65 sermons from Hebrews chapter 11. So Pastor Paul has a decision this week. Am I going to preach one, two, or three sermons in Hebrews 11? Or am I going to preach 65 sermons in Hebrews 11? Being a sensitive pastor, I asked myself if there was a third way. Could we work our way through Hebrews 11? Taking every character and every episode and making sure we've heard it, even if for the first time. 
and highlighting why he included that, what the story of faith is. And so I've chosen option number three. Pastorally, I've done it because I've got to believe that some of you, maybe you're not familiar with these characters and not familiar with these stories, or maybe it's been a while and it would be good to revisit and rehearse these events. Those of you who have mastered Hebrews 11, who have no need to hear it again, well, there's nothing I have to offer you because we're going to revisit Hebrews 11 and all that it has to say. So give your attention. This morning, only the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Let's pray that God would help us understand faith and live according to it. Lord, this morning, our prayer is simple. Would you grow us in our faith as you define it? that we might be enabled to persevere in faith as your word calls us to. So do this, Lord, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Definitions of faith. Definitions of what it is to believe. So I was a freshman. I was a 17-year-old freshman at Clemson University in what I think was my third week of the semester. where Clemson was hosting Florida State University for a football game in 1988. Some of you were there as I was. Here are my memories of that day. It was a big day because Clemson actually was ranked number three in the nation. Florida State was ranked number 10 in the nation. That was unusual. This was our chance to have national TV uh, there in Clemson. I was a freshman. I remember I, I lived off campus, but I spent the night with my brother in a dorm on campus so that we didn't have to fight the traffic on what was a rainy and dreary day. And I went to that game, and it, I, can, I can relive it. The feeling, the vibe, the weather. Brent Musburger was there. It was magical. The game played out, as many of you already know. Clemson played beautifully in so many ways. But near the end of the game, and I don't remember the time that was left, the game was tied, and Clemson had held Florida State to a fourth down in their own territory, and they were going to have to punt, and there was just enough time for us to, to maybe win this game. And they put on the scoreboard, this is the point of the story, You've got to believe. You've got to believe. And there I was, a 17-year-old freshman, believing. This is going to be it. We are going to make history. This is where all our dreams come true because we've got 90-plus thousand people believing, right? And so they line up to punt the ball to us, and we're going to have that game-winning drive. And you know, some of you know what happened. 
It was called the punt rooski. It was a fake punt. And Leroy Butler took the ball and ran around the left sideline, was run out of bounds at about the three-yard line or so. We held him to a field goal, and we never scored again, and the final score was 24 to 21. And the 90,000-plus people who, who just had to believe left there crushed to the point that they're talking about it 30-something years later, <laughs> right? Is, is the you got to believe, is that what faith is? If enough people believe it, we can make it true? Is that what the Bible means when it talks about faith? Or is the Bible talking about something very different? So in a wonderful way, I want you to see this morning that we have the benefit of the author of Hebrews modeling for us, not just teaching us what faith is, but he's going to model for us in these three verses how to think, how to frame your thought about yourself and the world in which we live. And it is marvelous. And so our first point this morning is faith a definition. He's going to define faith for us. We're not left to a football scoreboard to help us understand faith. He's going to tell us what faith is. And he says this in verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now that can kind of sound like 90,000 people in a football stadium really hoping for an outcome, being assured, surely this is the time we're going to do it. But it is a totally different thing. That is not how he is describing real faith in the real God. So I did a little Google search on the internet this week, and I, was, I found this. Spiritual practitioners on the power of wish and thought. Think football stadiums. Spiritual practitioners on the power of wish and thought. By wishing for something with passion, you send a powerful burst of energy to the universe, which works to make your dream come true. You hear that? It's okay to laugh at that. Let me restate it. Man, if enough people wish this outcome to a football game... And, and the people think this way. There will be this burst of energy that will bring to reality what the most people wishing for, what they want to happen. And that's as hokey as it sounds. It's as crazy as it sounds. And you know what? We can think this way. We can find ourselves thinking this way. Our world thinks this way. But that is a hokey, that is a, a wonky view of Faith, what the Bible would call faith. The author of Hebrews says, faith, the faith of God's people, is knowing with confidence that something is true because God has promised it. It's though you don't yet have it in hand, you're confident that it is yours. That's how the author of Hebrews defines Biblical faith. It is believing what has been promised that you believe it so much you'll act on it. You'll be obedient to what God calls you to do even though you don't yet have it in hand. 
That is what he says the ancients were commended for. Now, as we get in in the future weeks in Hebrews 11, he's going to take that definition of faith. Let me do it this way for you. He's going to take that definition of faith and he's going to show us person by person, character by character, story by story, that these people acted with confidence in the promise of Yahweh, the personal God of the Bible, that he said to do something, and though it made no worldly sense, they obeyed and they did it because they trusted the promise maker. That is what faith looks like. That is what belief looks like according to the author of Hebrews. You believe that something is yours even though you do not yet have it in hand. Now the imagery that comes to mind perhaps is, is that of inheritance. Inheriting the, the promise of resources that are yours. But you can find any number of stories of inheritance gone bad, can't you? There are stories of inheritance lost. There are positive stories of inheritance gained. And there are stories of inheritance that are never claimed. I found a story like that this week, actually from the state of Oregon. A woman who was 48 years old, a woman who was homeless, living on the street. And she died, and her family learned that there was almost a million dollars in the bank that was unclaimed by her as inheritance. She didn't know that it existed. They couldn't get in touch with her. They couldn't find her. They supposedly tried. And so inheritance, it can not be in your hand yet, and you cannot know about it. Inheritance can be wrongly spent. Inheritance can be taken from you. But what the Bible is saying is true for us because of God's goodness. What's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4? Listen to what the Lord says. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And so those who believe the promises of God, it's an inheritance we can't squander. It's an inheritance that cannot go unclaimed. It is an inheritance. If our faith is in the promises of God, it is kept for us. And the author of Hebrews says, such a faith will enable you to persevere, to endure to the end, overcoming all kinds of obstacles. And he's going to give us the stories of characters who believed in that inheritance, who believed in a promised land, who believed that God would be their God to them and their children, and they persevered by faith. That's the definition of faith that he gives us in verse 1. Then in verse 2, he references and says, oh no, wait a minute, not there, hold on. It's the promises of Yahweh because he is a covenant-keeping Lord. They know that the Lord will be faithful. Somehow by faith, they believe that the Lord will be faithful to his promises. 
So what's at stake? What's at stake for a believer if they don't know the promises of God and they don't have faith in the promises of God? Well, the author of Hebrews has kind of outlined that for us. He said that the, what's at stake is drifting from the promises of God. It's floating away. It's wandering away. It's being led away by lesser things, by empty things, by shiny objects, we could say, right? If we don't know the promises of God, if we don't embrace the promises of God as what we have, we'll be led astray. We will drift away for any shiny object that catches our eye. That's what's at stake. Watchman Nee, an evangelist in the early 1900s, says this about such faith. He says this, Faith is always like meeting a mountain, a mountain of evidence that seems to contradict God's Word, a mountain of apparent contradiction in the realm of tangible fact. And either faith or the mountain has to go. They cannot both stand. What he's saying there is that oftentimes when we put our faith in the promises of God and not in the shiny object of our culture, it can feel like you are up against a mountain. Everybody in your life says, oh, don't, don't do the hard thing. Do the easier thing. Do the simpler thing. Do the softer thing. And faith says, no, persevere. Endure through it. Trust the Lord and His promises. It can feel like that. And I don't know if you've lived through decision-making that feels like that. Where it can feel like there's a mountain of, of logical evidence to not give, to not serve, to not do anything sacrificial. But God's Word says that people of faith follow Him, obey Him. And so something's got to give. The mountain of your evidence or faith in the promise of God to provide, to protect, <clears throat> and to sustain His people. I don't know if you've lived through those decisions. Those are, those are gut-wrenching decisions. To make decisions by faith, to make decisions that seek to be obedient, when maybe sometimes your best counselors are your worst counselors. I think Watchman Nee is right. Something's got to give. God's people need to be committed to His promises and to acting in faith, even when it feels absurd. Because Hebrews 11 will tell us, God, we, God may call us to do absurd-seeming things in faith and by faith. Secondly, <clears throat> faith, a commendation. In verse 2, he quite simply says that such faith is what the ancients or the people of old, it's what they were commended for. It's why he lists them in the rest of Hebrews chapter 11. They demonstrated faith. Their faith overcame that mountain of evidence, all the good reasons to not obey, all the good reasons to not trust. They pushed through by faith. And he says they're commended for it. It was praiseworthy. It was good. And we'll get into all those details in the weeks to come, which takes us to our third point. <coughs> Faith, our understanding of creation. 
Listen again to verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. The author of Hebrews starts this repetition of by faith, by faith, by faith. This is the first by faith that he gives us. He's going to go through character by character by character, and he's going to introduce them by faith with what they were commended for doing. But isn't it interesting that the very first thing that he says is that by faith, we believe in creation. We believe that there is a creator and a creation and creatures. That there is a priority, a structure, an order. And by faith, that's how we think. This is how he models how we think. That's how we think and that's how we live. And we do it by faith. And then he's going to say a few things about this creation. He says that we believe that the universe was made. That God is the architect and the engineer of this world in which we live. That he made it. He fashioned it. He crafted it. Now, some of you have seen the TV show. It's on a science channel. It might be the Discovery Channel. It's called How It's Made. Have you seen this show? It's a pretty interesting show. You can watch it online. But they will show you how random, ordinary things of everyday life are actually made. And it's pretty fascinating to see the engineering, the thought, the design, the trial, the error that all goes into making something as simple as a rubber bouncing basketball, which is what I watched yesterday. (laughs) So we have this globe, this world that God has made, and we're in awe and wonder of that. And on a very small scale, you can watch this video about how we make this round globe bouncy ball made in China, I'm sure. The the science, the sophistication of it, the the learning of what materials to use, of how to capture air and, and not let it leak out, though every rubber basketball leaks air. There's no such thing as a rubber basketball that holds air for more than a few days. But how it's made, the technicality of it is fascinating. It's fascinating to me. And when we talk about creation, I'm I'm overwhelmed by the making of a basketball. Talk about creation of the universe, creation of the cosmos, creation of the earth in which we live. How much more sophistication and detail. And I don't understand it. I don't understand the basketball. Put me on on an island and tell me to make a basketball. I could live there for an eternity. I could never make a basketball. How much more does creation blow us away by what God has done and by who he is? There are a lot of things that I believe in and that you believe in that we cannot explain. Isn't it true? Gravity. I do not understand gravity. I can't explain it at all. I don't understand it, but I believe in it. I believe in gravity, but I can't explain it. I don't know how it happens. I don't know how it works. Electricity. I believe in electricity. I do not understand electricity. I don't know how it happens. I just know that I flip the switch and the lights come on, but I can't explain it. I don't understand it, but I do believe in it.
Laundry. I, I don't understand laundry. In, in my home, you take dirty clothes and, and put it in a basket. And 24 hours, a couple days later, it's clean. And it's, it's put back in drawers and it's folded. I have no idea how this, how this happens. She's like, yeah, you really don't know how that It's a mystery to me. These things, gravity, electricity, laundry. There are a lot of things that you believe in that you can't explain and can't understand. Creation is one of those. We don't have the details. Creation is given to us not in terms of geocentricity, heliocentricity. It's given to us in theocentricity. That God is the center that holds it all together. We're not given cosmology and the detailed explanation of how the earth was made, how the cosmos was made, but we, we are told there's a maker, a God of order and structure, and I believe that. I don't understand it. I don't know how he did it. He doesn't tell us how the specifics are that he did it, but I believe in it. And so we believe all kinds of things that we can't comprehend or understand or replicate. But what happens if we get this wrong? This is an important question. What happens if we get creation wrong and explain away the Creator? If we don't rightly understand ourselves as creation? What comes next if we get that wrong? What if our expectations of the Bible are wrong and we want it to be specific in ways that it's not? What are the consequences of bringing our demands to the text if it never intends to answer those in specific detail? Well, the outcome of that is to get the emphasis on the wrong syllable. We'll get things wrong. We'll get them wonky when we approach the Bible to answer questions that it is not intent on answering. I'll give you a real-life example. I was in the gym a few months ago, and um, I was with another pastor. We were talking about things of the Lord, I presume, because a stranger who I'd only seen in there once or twice came up to us and said, you guys sound like Christians. And we were like, well, yeah, we're, we're both pastors. And he said, do you believe that the earth is round? Or do you believe the Bible that it's flat? And I thought to myself, I've heard about people like you. <laughs> I didn't say that out loud, but I literally had never had a conversation. And so I, I listened to him try to really dominate the next few minutes. Gyms are not good places for conversations like this. It just, um, it's just a little awkward. But I listened to him, and, and, and I can show you, he said, 200 places in the Bible where it demands that the interpretation of the earth is that it's flat. And I politely, kindly objected, and I said, I, I don't think that's the intention of what the Bible is telling us. I think the intention of what God is telling us is that He is the Creator, we are the creature, and He can be known as He reveals Himself to us. Oh, no, 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 no. It has to be flat. He 
You see, if you come to the text demanding answers to questions that it is not seeking to provide, you will put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. You will be wonky in your perspective in what you are reading and applying and interpreting. But God has made it very clear. He is the creator. We are the creature. We submit to him. He is a God of order and structure, not a God of chaos. And chaos will result when we don't come to him on his terms and we insist our own. It's also, the author says in verse 3, creation out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo. That only God can take nothing and breathe and speak something. And those are the details he has not given us. It's matter of fact. Nothing, God spoke everything into being. It's a mystery not to be understood or comprehended by us. And he did it, he says, by his spoken word, by his command. Nine times in Genesis chapter 1, the language of, and God said, let there be. And what is communicated to us is that God is all-powerful, able to do everything beyond our ordinary means in his own supernatural way, and it just is. Without explanation of detail, it is put before us, this is how it is. And the author of Hebrews says, and the people of faith believe it. We believe that God is the creator we are the creature, and it's not the other way around. This doctrine of creation that he references, the best way I know to, to highlight the importance, it's as simple as, as buttoning your shirt in the morning. Where for the doctrine of creation, you get that first button wrong, and I was tempted to button my shirt wrongly for the purpose of illustration, but I realize I'd be wearing it for hours. But if, if I got the first button wrong, everything's wonky from there. There's no fixing it, right? He's saying that God's people have always understood and believed the doctrine of creation. God is God. We are creature. He has authority to define everything. And so the doctrine of creation is critical to us as Christians because it tells us who we are. It tells us who God is. And it tells us what life is all about. It frames everything for our thought, for our life, and for our practice. Now I know some would say, I object. I object. You can't take a primitive book written by primitive authors and look to it to speak in such important and sophisticated ways. We're so much more educated now. We're so much more enlightened. We're so much more sophisticated. We can't dare let our framework and structure come from such naive and primitive thought. I know that objection. I've, I've heard it for, for decades. But the Bible proposes and suggests that our sinful minds can't understand and comprehend God's majesty, God's wonder, God's creation. We can study it. We can be in awe of it. 
Some things we can understand, some things we can replicate. But God is God and we are not. So what's at stake if we get the doctrine of creation wrong? I think Isaiah 64 verse 8 captures it in its own way. It says, You, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. You see, that's a right view of creator and creature. And if we don't get that order right, that framework right, what will happen? But the pot, the clay, will seek to define itself. Never mind what the potter says. The pot will say, I'm a pitcher, or I'm a vase, or whatever. We will redefine in our own preferences, our own language, our own terms, whatever is popular in our day, the clay will talk back to the potter. And that is chaos. That is disorder. That does not work in God's world. It will eventually crumble to ruin. And we are seeing this in the world and the culture in which we live. Where God and His Word have spoken about what a family is, what a man and a woman are, what it means to consider the beauty and value of life and death, what sexuality and gender are. We are the clay. God is the potter. And in the church, we let him define the terms of his creation because we believe that he is God. And the author of Hebrews says that the ancients, the people of old, they were commended for living through ridicule and hardship and persecution and suffering because by faith they believed in the word of God. They were willing to go against the grain to do what looked foolish to the world, what looked like absurd practice, thoughtless practice. And he's going to remind us of all these characters that every one of them lived by faith Believing God to be true and not trusting the wisdom of man, by faith they persevered and carried through. And that's his invitation to us, to believe God with such faith. Even when it might feel like there's a mountain of evidence or reason not to, there's something mysterious in God's people that by faith they would believe and persevere, not in stubbornness, but in faithfulness. And so how is such a faith possible? Where does such a faith come from? Can you muster up such a faith? You can't. You've never been able to and neither have I. But the good news is what we heard in our assurance of pardon this morning. It's what we're told in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen again. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. There it is, the key word. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. The faith you and I need is that faith that God gives by His grace. You and I can't muster it up. I don't know what your anthropology is, what your view of yourself is, but if it's a biblical anthropology, you'll admit that you can't muster up anything that God requires. No holiness, no faith, but He can provide it. He can work it in the hearts of sinners. And that's our great hope. That He would increase our faith. That He would grow us in that grace. That He would do the fulfillment of the promise that He made to His people. To hold a remnant to Himself. A remnant that persists in faith. Even when the world scoffs and says it's all foolish. Let's pray that we would be those kinds of people. That He would work such a faith in each of us. Lord, that is our prayer this morning. We want to share the faith of those who persevered so well in previous generations. More than just being like them, we want you to work in us in the way that you provided them faith and the way that you sustained them by your powerful hand of grace. So Lord, would you do that? As we sing to you, the one who is the lovely source of true delight, though unseen, we adore you. Do this, Lord, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing.
please be seated. This morning, it's our privilege to come to the Lord's table. Actually, you will have the elements brought to you by our elders in just a moment. But as we prepare to come to the table, let me, let me remind you of the role of faith in coming to this table, of partaking of these elements. Faith is what is being highlighted in Hebrews and in our text this morning. It's been defined for us of really believing and trusting the promises of God as if we have them in hand, though we may not have them in hand at the moment. And what we believe about the table and about the sacrament is that there really are benefits for you as a believer to be had when you partake by faith. There's nothing magical about the elements of, of cracker or bread or of wine or juice. There's nothing magical about them that will work faith in you. But when you partake them by faith, having confessed your sins and trusting in God's promise of forgiveness... He says that He works through those to encourage you, to remind you through the visible picture of the gospel that you really have union with Him. Though a sinner, you really can be united by Him, welcomed by Him, loved by Him. And so in the table, what we'll pray for this morning is that He would offer us assurance of His love, a peace of our conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, an increase of our experience with grace and strength that we might all persevere through faith to the very end. Let's pray that the Lord would bless these elements and use them in that way. Lord, we have confessed our sins this morning and you have assured us in your word of pardon And now we approach this table and these elements with that promise in mind that we believe by faith. We haven't lived well enough to partake of these elements. Our thought life has condemned us. Our actions have condemned us. But you have offered the blood of your Son to wash the sins of those who trust in Him. And so, Lord, would you take this meal that you've given your church, this memorial meal, to help us to remember what Christ has done for us as the atoning sacrifice of our sins, whom we believe in by faith. Do this, Lord, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.